Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. Outtakes from Rob Barris's Instagram Live. He had scheduled for me for when I was there. That was one of the featured things he wanted to do. So we just jumped right into that after I'd gotten the tour. Some excerpts from that. Thanks, sponsors Top Spinini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Talking the Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, yes, Burbank Sports Cards, CompC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So thanks, Rob. Apologize for the audio. You should go to his Instagram live and I think he now posted it and you can see it but he makes it fun that audio I'm sure is better than this audio but I wanted to post it for you so I think it's good content with bad quality still good content so thanks everybody here it is it's card father here anybody that knows me knows I have a certain respect for someone that goes above and beyond the norm I've known this gentleman now for about 25 years basically the industry wouldn't look the same without him and it's a pleasure to have Jim Beckett on the couch at Jim, it's your first time in this location. First impressions? Super impressive. Beyond what I thought. And I'm not even half done. <laughs> this is true. We gotta go to the warehouse still, right? There's OGs, and people call me an OG, but there's a generation ahead of me. And there was a generation ahead of you as well. And who better to speak on the history of the industry? A lot of people come in, they know the modern, but bringing you in to give some perspective, we're all on the shoulders of giants. And if you want to maybe speak on a few of the guys that influenced you early on, and some of the ideas you had from Beckett obviously came from other people. Anybody in particular that comes to mind as far as you know, folks before you were doing what you were doing, folks that were doing things before you. When I came in, I was the young guy. <laughs> wow. So who is this young guy? The two guys that were both about six or seven years older than me really impacted me. The first guy I really knew in the industry, in the organized hockey, was Gervis Ford, who was the leading collector in the Dallas area, close friend over time, and business partners, and then Denny Eckes. Denny has passed away now, but Denny was also a really active guy. Both those guys came at things a little differently, but quality guys really loved the hobby, and in both cases, they allowed me to be me. It's just seeing you here with your dad and your son. Each one is different, but it allows you to be you and the excellence that you have, and not to have to be all things to all people. Obviously, there wasn't the kind of organization or databases or anything of that nature back when you were doing things in the 60s and 70s. And obviously, there weren't really card shows of note, at least not the way we see them today. How did you acquire cards, and what was the norm back then of getting together and trading and buying? Well, it was a lot of fun buying cards when nobody knew what they were worth, except people that were really into it. You'd know that this is better. If you didn't see something very much, you knew it was better. When I looked at the problem of the disorganization in the hobby, I really thought this is a math problem. I can solve this math problem. What I didn't realize that I now realize in hindsight is the relationships I had with the older guys that you're talking about many of whom I've done tributes to, they really set the stage for when, as you've embraced technology, we embraced technology at the time, for what was capable, that maybe wouldn't have been capable 20 years before, for me to be able to bring a little bit of order to the chaos. That was awesome. Yeah, and, and the chaos has just grown exponentially since then. You were talking about chaos when there was basically one release and that being tops, but obviously going back decades, so many releases going back to the 1880s, and no one had really documented it in a way that was cohesive to someone just getting in and understanding what's even out there. The SKUs, the stock-keeping units, there were too many to keep track of 
40 years ago, 50 years ago, but it's mind-blowing now. Sure. People think in the price guide aspect or in the retail store aspect, how do you do all this stuff? Unless there's some organization that starts with the database to be able to know what to call. You don't even know how to get started. Otherwise, you don't even know what you have. You don't know what's out there. You don't know what you're missing. And I try to do my part. You've sort of done your part. People can go to your places and say, I want that. And you've got a fair price on it. Not cheap, but not overpriced or underpriced. It's just what the market is. So people always knew what the market was for the things they were aware of. But the price guides came in and the initial and the price guides were more, people didn't even know what was out there. Right. Or what to call it, a nomenclature. Or, uh, frankly, what it was worth was incomprehensible. Yeah. Because demand was hard to categorize. The supply was so low, you couldn't even figure out what demand was. Certainly, you would want it. Right. But the prices now, if something is really scarce and the demand is high, prices right. have gone to six figures, seven figures. It's, but it's that wasn't even thought of in those days. For the Wagner card was hundreds of dollars, not millions of dollars. And even $1,000 for a card would be no. outrageous. Heck, $10 for a card back when I started Rob's Cards and Collectibles. And cards that were more than $10 were big ticket cards back in the late 70s, early 80s. And I bought cards for such cheap prices. And I would think, do I feel guilty about that? I think, wait a minute, I was a knowledgeable buyer buying from a knowledgeable seller. But the prices, if you went back and looked at that, you think, you robbed that guy. Wait a minute. He's my friend. I still know him. He doesn't want his money. I bought it for a retail price at the time. Yeah. Yeah. It was so hard to judge. But it could be $5 for a card that's $500. Yeah. Or $5,000, which is yeah. crazy. Just to create a price guide and bring this order to chaos, just the nomenclature and what to call things. Back then, it was tops number 313. And now some of this nomenclature, the titles can be like 150 characters and trying to figure out what things are called. The card companies look to us during some of those early decades to what to call it. They put it out, they didn't wow. send out their releases or their spreadsheets or anything like that. They weren't doing PR. They would just put out the cards and we'd have to go buy some boxes or look at the checklist cards and try to figure out what it was and what to call it. And then what it was worth, which was really difficult, but we had a fabulous team. An army of genius. So Beckett was basically a training school for so many. We were not the minor leagues. You're not the, no, you were the majors. We were the all-stars. You were. But somehow the all-stars moved on to other places. And that's a shame. I remember going to see you in the late 90s, early 2000s, and I was always so floored with the talent that was there, just great people. I think there were great people first that you had the systems in place to make them great talent that could go on to other endeavors and as different manufacturers were looking to poach people, first place they went was Beckett because that's where well, the talent a lot of the, was. Nowadays people think, if you start a company, you think, I'm going to find good people and then I'm going to train them Right. know what to do. We found good people they were already trained. Our mutual friend Grant. He worked in a card store already and really brought a lot of value to our company and then now to Upper Deck too. But that's an example of somebody, high character, but also really understood the industry. What a great opportunity we had in those days. Yeah, I actually interviewed Grant. I know. You the tried, one that got away. Poached him. Oh my God. I would have That would have damaged our friendship. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> no, I would never do such a thing. But it's just when you no, think. No, but Grant got a raise out of it, Robert. Oh, yeah, I couldn't afford him. <laughs> that's what it came down no, to. No, that's what happened. Yeah. He'd knock on my door and say, I'm considering some things. So let's look at your salary right now. I think maybe you're due for a raise. Yeah, it's got the talent and the people that have come through. It was always like home to me. And I think back 
And I like to tell stories of different things. And the story I always loved to tell was back around 2002-ish, I get a call from Jim and he's, I'd like to talk to you. Are you going to the San Francisco show? And I said, I didn't have plans for it, but if Jim wants to talk to me, I'm going to the San Francisco show. So I go up there and we meet, we end up going for some Chinese, I believe. And it was me, you, and Mark Harwell, rest in peace, brother, who was the VP at the time. Forward-thinking guy, brilliant guy, larger-than-life personality. And we're sitting down there, and me and Mark, a million miles a minute, going back and forth. He was like a big brother to me, really helped me through a lot of things, especially technology-wise. And Jim's there, as Jim does, sitting back, kind of taking things in, and then he opens his mouth and just floors me, and you said, how would you like to come to Dallas were the words that you said and I'm thinking obviously that you're offering me a job and so I'm like are you trying to hire me Jim he goes no I've got something better I'd like for you to bring your store to Dallas and put it within our facility and I'm just sitting here going you've got to be kidding this is like a small computer store Bill Gates saying would you like to come to Redmond and open up shop at our facility and I was just honored and floored at the same time and you're like we'll give you all the space all these people come through our building and we thought we had the Taj Mahal but now that I've come here this is the Taj Mahal oh my god did you guys all get that people call it Mecca but now it's the Taj Mahal we can have something for every nationality we do we do the diversity in here right now and the happiest place the sign says so happiest place in the hobby but Jim literally was like, I have the space available. We wanted to create a place, working with people that were going to make the hobby bigger, make the pie bigger. You're certainly doing that. I thought there was a chance there'd be some great cross-fertilization and ideation if you were there, but it wasn't meant to be. On the other hand, the marketplace, we virtually got that, but I think the energy that you have personally is an important part of it. So I'm excited. I'm like moving to Dallas at the time. You could buy a really nice house. And then you went home for dinner. And then I get on the phone with Sally, talking to the card mother. And I'm like, honey, I'm like hair standing up on my arms. I'm like so excited. She First words out of her mouth, we're not moving to Dallas. And that was that. <laughs> and luckily with the way things all turned out, it worked for the best. But just honored that you would come to me with something like that. And it just means the world to me. The work should be fun. Most people in the industry, in the hobby, love what they do. I hope they do if they've been that's sad, but you've created an environment here. I tried to create an environment where people would enjoy coming to work. Sure. Not just because they liked their work, but they liked who they were working with. Yeah. They liked their customers, they liked their fellow employees, they liked their bosses. Yeah. Those were the days. And, I and remember, you're proving that yeah. these are the good new days. All these different platforms for figuring out price. You guys obviously that was your bread and butter. That was what Beckett was, the that database. Time for sure, because that's pre, that was before we did grading. Yeah, this was. By the way, did you ever explain to Sal tax benefit? <laughs> <laughs> Real estate savings. Yeah, she wasn't having any of it. No personal income tax or anything. Card mother was having none of it. But so now, so when you were gathering pricing back then, there was no digital trails and you weren't able to just scrape data back in the day. You had to go out physically and find that data. And something that's cool is you guys used to send out pricing sheets to sellers out there that were basically blown up Xeroxes 
of the magazine and dealers like ourselves would make any changes to the price guides. And I was honored to be a part of that. How big was your team back then for pricing? We never got above 18 guys that were doing, but, but that meant that with 18, you could have somebody on the East Coast, the Midwest, and the and the West Coast every weekend without wearing people out. Everybody went somewhere once a month. Right. For a weekend a month, you'd be at a series of shows, really. For the West Coast, you might do a show in L.A. on Friday and San Francisco on Saturday, or you could spread out East Coast. You could Rich Klein would get... The guys had territorial rights. Rich Klein had rights to New Jersey. Grant Sandgram had, had rights to the L.A. area. Dave Slip had rights to Chicago. And, sure. Some of my very favorite people in the world. Philadelphia. But then it made sense because then they had contacts there. Sure. Not only were we sending out these blow-up sheets, we could verify. We could see who's really just trying to inflate their own inventory and who really is telling the truth and really understands there's enough positives without stretching the truth. The truth already is fabulous that cards are selling for a little bit, in those days, a little bit more each month. Now they go for so much more the next month or the next day, but then they can fall back again just because of the dynamic flow. And so it's not as orderly, but the dynamic element is very much appreciated as long as things are going on. See, one of my big problems with all these apps is they're basically just data scrapers. True? Well, for past tense. Right, for past tense. And my whole thing is we sell a tremendous amount of cards in here. There are a tremendous amount of sales out there that aren't represented in these numbers that are quote-unquote what the card is worth at that given time. Right. It doesn't take into account any card that we've sold in here today. Well, uh, and the other thing that nobody else did other than for sure me and I hope my guys uh, back in the day is what we actually did have one woman back in the day but it was mostly guys. But we took into account what didn't sell. I'm here today and when I leave today what didn't sell it's hard for you to justify, hey, that card's worth a lot more. Right. When it sat there all day, and I'm not just saying one day, it right. sat all month and it didn't sell. So what didn't sell at a certain price, it's hard for somebody to say, oh, they're selling like hotcakes. Wait a minute, there's a bunch of them right here. Nobody looked at it. And so taking into account non-sales is also part of it. People don't want to hear that because they just want to know, what's the highest price it's ever sold at? Well, what's the lowest price it's ever sold at? This is true. And it, you know, you had a small army out there. And we had to have an army not to do the pricing but to verify it and vet to, and like you said we did scrape to the extent we could the digital sources which increasingly was ebay but you've got to vet that there's some data that's not accurate the nomenclature's not there or it's a sale that was not consummated somebody with zero feedback that she'll bid something so we had to have relationships to know who was trustworthy